1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to continue through our series uh, in 1 Corinthians. And today we arrive at the least preached passage in all of 1 Corinthians. It is. It is the least preached passage in all of 1 Corinthians. And as we read it, you're going to be like, huh, that makes sense. That's why people don't (laughs) preach on this. Um, But before we do, please bow your heads with me and join me in prayer. Holy Father God, we thank you. We thank you. Thank you for this space. We thank you that we can uh, just have great acoustics as we sing, God. I thank you that we can uh, gather in a home to, to break bread as we take communion after this, Lord, to hear your word. God, we pray that you open wide our hearts to receive from you whatever you're speaking to us, whatever you're telling to us. God, and we pray that we can have soft hearts, uh, that we can be humble to, to you, God, because you are the king over all of the universe. You are our God, and we thank you. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The title of the message this morning, if you're going to take notes, is A Little Yeast. A Little Yeast. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. This is why the kids are in the other room. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it mine to judge those outside the church? But are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys understand why it's the least preached passage in 1 Corinthians? And maybe in in the New Testament. Uh, But I have a question for you guys this morning. Show of hands, how many of you guys have ever played tug of war before? Are you any good at it? Well, everybody's played. Wow, that's, we got 100% um, acceptance right there. No, you're not very good. <laughs> yes, we played Tug of Warp. Some of you guys may have seen a show called Squid Game, which I cannot endorse, but there's a pretty grisly scene of Tug of War in that, in that show. And when you play Tug of War, sometimes there's like more at stake than just like winning the tug, right? Sometimes there's something in the middle, like a little a chasm of some sort. Uh, I grew up going to this Christian summer camp. And uh, we go there for a week. And one year they said, oh, we're, you know, every 
cabin, every you know, kind of group that you're, you're rooming with, you guys are going to be at war with one another and you guys are going to have to play a tug of war. And in the middle, it's going to be this big mud pit. And so you know very well if you lost, right? If you, if you won, you know because you, you didn't get any mud on you. But if you lost, it's not looking pretty for you. Yeah. Uh, and so we, we played tug of war over this mud pit. And you guys know that there's like strategy involved in tug of war, right? No? See, and you probably didn't win very much then, did you? No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Um, no, there's, there's definitely strategy involved. You want to have your, your two strongest people at the back and front. Uh, strongest at the back, second strongest at the front. And you also want to make sure that you all tug at the same time, right? You got to have like this rhythm going of tugging, right? Pull, pull, pull. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We all do that together. One, two, three. Pull, pull, pull. Well done, guys. Oh. Now you guys are going to win next time. You all want to pull together. And uh, it's not a good sign on your team if someone falls down, though, right? You guys ever played tug of war and someone slips and falls on your team? Your whole team is cooked, right? That whole team is going to be dragged into the mud pit. Because uh, once, once somebody falls, it, it ruins the sink of the whole group. Then you're worrying about pulling the person up or you don't pull them up and then you have this dead weight and then you get dragged. It takes away the whole energy that the group is using to work together to try to win the fight. And I think uh, that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. You know, similarly, if you have one strong person who's really, really strong, but also is able to guide the rest of the team, you're at a great advantage. A little yeast, a little bad yeast, leavens the whole batch of dough in a horrible way. If one person falls, the whole team is probably going to fall. But at the same time, if one person rises up and decides to kind of take ownership of the team and be like, guys, we've got this. Let's pull together. Let's all do this as one in sync. Let's put our strongest person in the front, strongest person in the back and pull together. The whole group can actually arise and become stronger than they were ever before. A little good yeast can also leaven the whole batch of dough. But put simply, the idea here is a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I think I have one of those personalities that's a little bit polarizing. And what I mean when I say that is that specifically with like ministry events, for instance, if there's an event I'm really excited about and happy to be there, oh, I can get everybody hype and happy to be there. That's polarizing. Uh, the exact opposite, though, is true. If I have a bad attitude at being at some event, oh, all the people around me are going to know it, and they're probably going to have a, a poor attitude as well. Mm. It's polarizing. Yeah. My energy can be either good or bad for others. And I think that carries into lots of different areas. This is an example of a little yeast leavening the whole batch of dough, yeah. positively or negatively. But by negatively... That's my sin that affects the whole group. If I'm being selfish, it's going to encourage other people, oh, it's okay to be selfish. If I'm being um, complacent, it's going to encourage other people, oh, it's okay to be complacent. And when I think about that for myself, that's scary. But I think sometimes in the church we can get weird when we talk about our sin. Many of us begin to believe this statement, that sin is a personal matter for that person and God, and it's not my business. You guys ever felt like you've kind of 
thought that way or acted that way before. Like, oh, that person said, that's, that's between them and God. That's not me, right? I can't, I, oh, that's not my stuff. And even if you haven't said that out loud, I think subconsciously many of us or all of us begin to believe that. And this is the kind of thing we say to ourselves. If asked about sin, we might even say it out loud. But when it comes to talking about our own sin with others, we generally try to generalize it. When we're talking about our sin, we don't want to be specific. We don't want to be specific about the things that we've said that were wrong or hurtful. Or the things that we've done that make us look shameful. We don't want to talk about those things. We don't want to be specific. Rather, we like to hide it. We like to keep our sin kind of close to our chest, just between us and God, maybe, or just between us and ourselves. Maybe we don't even talk to God about it. We want to hide it because with it, we carry the weight of shame. And something in, inside us tells us that this just isn't, isn't right. And because of that shame, we want to keep sin as a personal matter. But sin is never just one's personal business. Sin always affects God, and it always affects ourselves. It always affects God because this is God's universe. Everything you do is in God's world, not yours. You know, we kind of talk about sometimes like, oh, this is, I'm in my own little world. No, you're not. You're in God's world. You're just acting like he's not there, right? We're not in our own little world. We're in God's world. And each of us is God's son or daughter. God, our sin always affects God because God's children. He cares. And when your child does something that hurts themselves, it hurts you. You feel pain. This, like, your stomach kind of clenches. Darius, I'm sure you could agree. My beautiful little Judah, sometimes when I'm holding him, he'll kind of like get excited and like headbutt me right in the mouth. And like my mouth might hurt a little bit, but not, like, not that bad, right? But him, sometimes he doesn't care. Sometimes he's, ah, you know, starts crying. And I'm like, oh no, You're like I'm so sad about it. My whole body tenses up. I'm like, oh, poor Judah. Because when he's hurt, I'm hurt. Similarly, sometimes he'll like, when his, his nails, if you get, get like a hangnail or something, he'll like scratch his face while he's sleeping in the middle of the night. And we wake up and there's like a little scab and you're just like, no! Cat, <laughs> you relate to this. I know you do. Uh, I just saw it on your face. Uh, but this like pains you on the inside when your child hurts himself. And that's how God feels about us with our sin. All of our sin always affects God. And it always affects us. But it affects God even to an eternal degree. And previously, about a year ago, I preached a sermon on, on like, what is sin? And uh, I, I defined sin as trespassing the bounds God gives us for life in his kingdom of goodness. Life where there is no tears, no death, no pain or hurt, no hunger or thirst. Again, sin is trespassing the bounds God gives us for life in his kingdom of goodness. It's not following God's ways. It always hurts God. It always hurts us. But it also hurts others too. Again, sometimes we deceive ourselves thinking that sin is just between us and God. It always affects others too. If I decide to steal something, I've hurt God by my actions. That hurts him. That goes against his bounds for life of goodness in his universe. It hurts God if I steal something. I also hurt myself because now I've done something that will tarnish the image of God that I'm meant to bear and reflect. Each of you is meant to bear and reflect the image of God. And when you sin, you tarnish that image, even if it's only momentarily. And I start to resemble the devil 
more than Jesus. Someone who rebelled against God rather than someone who sacrificed their very life as God. So that's what starts to happen when we sin, but I also hurt others when I steal because I took something from them. I robbed them of not only their belongings, but also their dignity as an image bearer of God who should be treated as you would treat Jesus himself. Our sin does this every time. Sexual sin does this with us and ourselves, or I mean, uh, and other people. Our anger or cursing does this. We take away the dignity of others when we mistreat them, or when we say something hurtful or, or vile to them, even if it's only in small ways. And these things tend to make us either, one, hide in shame, or two, become defensive and justify ourselves. The chief story uh, to kind of illustrate some of these ideas is found in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve, God has given them bounds for life in goodness in the Garden of Eden. He says, eat whatever you want, do whatever you want. I am with you, I'm walking with you, it's perfect here. There's no pain, tears, hiding, crying, shame, nothing. But this bound, to keep it that way, to keep evil from entering, is don't touch that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which would then give you knowledge of evil so that you'll do evil. He says, don't touch that. Everything will be perfect. They touch that. They eat the fruit they're not supposed to. Shame fills them. Sin enters into the humanity, right? Uh, And what do they do? Anybody know? Yeah, they hide. They go hide in some bushes. They clothe themselves with you know, these garments made out of leaves, right? They hide. And God walks and says, where are you? He's not trying to figure out where they are, right? This is God's universe. Remember, he sees everything. You can't hide anything from God. What God is doing is he's inviting them to let go of shame and come back into relationship with him. He's inviting them to be honest, to be vulnerable, to be authentic, to be real. And then... If you remember what happens next, they kind of get in this like little dialogue with God, trying to justify their actions. Yeah. Well, oh, the serpent, the serpent deceived me. Oh, well, these situa- this scenario, this led me to do that. And you're like, wow, shame and self-justification. These are the results of our sin. In our passage today, we're going back to Corinth. Paul has gotten word that a man in the church in Corinth, uh, someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus, is sleeping with his father's wife. Can we all agree that's probably inappropriate? Yes. The language is interesting there. Because he doesn't say a man is sleeping with his mother. It says a man is sleeping with his father's wife. And so it's led many commentators to assume that the man's father had, had remarried. And likely maybe with a woman who is much younger. So she's somewhat closer in age to the son. Which is interesting. And, but regardless of kind of what the scenario is there, if there's familial ties, even if they're not blood ties, that's illegal in Jewish law. And we would all say that's wildly inappropriate. And, uh, <laughs> wildly inappropriate. And, and why, why Paul says, and it's sexual immorality to a sort that even the pagans do not tolerate, is because, well, it, it was considered incest one way or the other. And incest was illegal in Jewish law. But it was also illegal in Roman law. Even the pagans outlawed this practice. And you could be punishable by jail and fines and, and court uh, if you did something like this. Similarly, 
that same sort of behavior is illegal in America today. In all 50 states, incest is illegal. Uh, just like the Roman government outlawed it back then. In Corinth, it seemed that the shame and defensiveness of the church, though, had kept them from dealing with this problem themselves. They might be muttering about it to one another kind of behind closed doors, but nobody was talking about it in real life. Nobody was approaching the brother and having conversation with him and calling him out for his sin. Nobody was then bringing him before the church. Nobody was dealing with it as a church. They said, that sin, that's his personal business. That's between him and God, maybe. Oh, I'm going to do the same thing with my sin because I don't want to talk about my sin. And so we're not going to talk about his sin. It's interesting in this passage about sexual sin, Paul mentions pride or arrogance and boasting twice. And he links those here with their dealing with sin because they're not dealing with sin. That's justifying ourselves. In their pride, they boasted that, well, we're, we're doing all right. We can handle our own problems on our own. That's not my problem. That's his problem. And in fact, then what you read, if you keep reading in chapter 6, is, well, they seem to think, well, I'm going to let the courts handle that man. I'm going to let the outside world. It's illegal in the outside world, too, so I'm going to let the courts handle this issue. We're not going to get involved. And at first glance, many of us are like, that's crazy. Like, how are you going to let that happen? You're not going to say anything? But don't we do that, too? With our sin, don't we also let our shame and pride get the best of us to the point where we try to hide what's really going on or we defend ourselves and our choices? I know I feel those things. When I know I've sinned against someone, I feel this kind of clench of shame and guilt in my stomach. And when I do confess my sin, my first reaction is to kind of want to like church it up. You know what I mean by that? Make it sound a little bit better. Clean it up a little bit on the outside so it doesn't sound as bad. I want to present it in the best light possible with a little bit of self-justification because I'm ashamed of the reality of who I am and what I've done. Can you relate to this at all? Do you kind of keep your sin, your shortcomings to yourself to protect your image or reputation? When someone tries to bring something up to you, do you get defensive or justify yourself? Do you try to church yourself up and make yourself look not as bad? Because if so, we aren't any better than the Corinthians. Our sin will in fact hurt us. We will be trying to win a tug-of-war match against Satan while we're falling on the ground. And we're deceived if we think that the rest of our team, our church family, won't also be affected by that too. I'll take this even a step further. If you know a brother or sister is in sin and you do nothing about it, are you not also responsible for them? Do you ever find yourself thinking, I won't talk about that person's sin because that is their business, not mine. If you're playing tug of war and your teammate falls down, are you just going to ignore them and pretend like they're all right and keep doing your thing? I hope not. You will lose if you do that. In fact, a little yeast does work its way through the whole batch of dough. So let's stop being proud. Let's stop hiding our sin, but rather let's expose it to light. Let's expose our sin to God and to one another so we can help each other get back onto our feet. We need to pull against Satan together, not out of sync, each tugging our own little battles. Otherwise, we will all fall. And so I have four practicals, four practices 
this week that we can put this into practice. As more than ever before, right? Before, you know. Number one, normalize real talk. Normalize, it is a 30, 34% increase if we round up. Normalize real talk. We can't hide. Like in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve had sinned and felt ashamed and were hiding from God, and he asks, where are you? Answer God. Answer one another. Come into the light. Come into relationship again. Don't hide. Don't self-isolate. But normalize real talk. Have questions with one another. Talk to one another. Be real. And let us be sincere and true, as verse 8 says. Putting off malice and wickedness. Number two, deal with our defensiveness. We cannot be proud when it comes to dealing with our sin. I know many of you very well, and I know that many of you really want to be like Jesus. We can't let our pride get in the way of that. If you really want to be a person of love and purity and hospitality, don't let pride stop that. None of us are perfect. We all know that. That's not a surprise to any of us. If we talk about sin, we're not going to surprise one another. Right? If Christian's like, yo, I sinned the other day. I'm what? That's not going to happen. We're all going to be like, oh, that makes sense because we're human and this is how we, we have to deal with our sin. These talks are necessary. That's normal. We're not going to surprise one another. We don't need to prove ourselves to others. We don't need to prove ourselves to God either. He sees everything as it actually is already. What you think you know, you haven't really know the whole story, right? God does, and he's not going to destroy you forever for that. He wants to talk with you about it. He wants to know your lives. So let's get rid of all defensiveness and live in humility. Practice number three is let us rid ourselves of the old yeast. We all have patterns, behaviors, way of speaking, habits that are sinful. But we know we're wrong, or at least deep down, we we feel the need to justify. Because if we feel the need to justify something, it's probably because it's wrong, right? We all have patterns like that. We all have behaviors like that. That we feel unsettled about or unhappy about, maybe even. That we know are not best for us. These are old yeast that will bleed into the other areas of our lives and our relationships and will affect the other people in this room. And if you love one another, get rid of your old yeast. Let us flee from such sin. Practice number four is let us take responsibility for one another. We are without excuse to not hold one another accountable and try to help one another be more like Jesus. We are without excuse. Our fear of ruffling feathers or desiring to stay comfortable or not, is not an excuse to ignore sin in each other. So let's help each other back onto our feet by being real. Hashtag be real. <laughs> No? Anybody? No? Christian. Hey, okay, cool. And then hearing all this, if you're anything like me, you're probably already thinking about things that you should or shouldn't do, conversations you should or shouldn't have. And if you're anything like me, it becomes scary and exhausting very quickly. I know for me, when I think about things I need to like confess and then also conversations I need to have with somebody else about something I see in them, I'm like terrified. I'm like, I don't want to do any of this. That's exhausting and scary and uncomfortable. I'm already tired. I'm already emotionally drained. And if that describes you this morning, let's look back at the very middle of our passage today, the hidden gem that is verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Why does Paul say that? 
in the middle of this passage. It has nothing to do with the sexual morality. It has nothing to do with the man who's being incestuous. Why does he say that? Why is he in the middle of the text? Why does it stick out like a sore thumb? I think Paul knows this conversation is difficult. And maybe even predicts a propensity to shy away from these hard conversations. And right in the middle, he says the Passover lamb is the lamb that takes away our pain. It's been sacrificed for us. The lamb that takes away our death. That takes away our suffering and puts our sin onto itself. It dies when we ought to have died. It takes our place. And in the old Jewish tradition where they would sacrifice the Passover lamb, the person who's sacrificing it when they slit their throat would have to hold, put their hand over its neck as it bleeds out. And it's a symbolic, it makes you feel the life that is going away. It's, it's ending for your sake. It makes you take responsibility, but it also says what you've done is now being pressed onto this lamb. You're no longer guilty of it. That's the, the Passover lamb. Paul said, our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, has been sacrificed. He has taken our place. His blood was poured out for our sake. He took our sin and our shame onto himself. So if you're feeling down this morning, know that Christ has gone to the depths already for you. The sin and shame that stood against you, he's taken onto himself. You are free indeed. And because you are free, you're also guiltless. And you may be unashamed. We may celebrate the festival, the festival where our sins are forgiven, we're brought out into freedom. That's Passover, the Exodus. We may celebrate Passover looking to Jesus in sincerity and truth. And for the early Christians, Passover was every Sunday. It was every week where they would gather to take the bread that is Jesus' body and drink the juice of the wine that is Jesus' blood and celebrate that Jesus has led us into freedom. Jesus has taken death onto himself and defeated it. We are free indeed. And so with Jesus, let us live in sincerity and truth. As we take communion, may we confess and renounce our sins. But even more so, may we look to Jesus for our saving and our hope. What we cannot change in ourselves, Jesus can. With him, we can be made whole. So may we put away the old bread, leavened by our sin. And may we enjoy the unleavened bread of Jesus as we become a new people leavened with Christ and thus helping one another rise when we fall. The little yeast of Christ will also work its way through the whole batch of dough. Amen. I'm going to pray. We're going to have one final song and then let's all walk to the back and take communion. Holy Father, as we prepare to take the bread and the juice that uh, you've appointed for us to remember Jesus, to remember what he's done for us, but also to remember that this is your world, God. We cannot hide from you. Everything we do, you see. But God, we are your sons and daughters, and you love us desperately and completely, and there's nothing we can do to change that. Father, with that beautiful knowledge of your love for us, let us celebrate Passover lamb that is Jesus. Let us be people who who leave our sin behind, that get rid of the old leaven and help one another rise to our feet that we can be a new people living like Jesus in this world by your strength and by your power. Holy Spirit, come. Guide us in the days to come. 
change us, transform us. Give us the courage to have hard conversations and honest conversations. Give us the courage to not let shame or pride isolate us or deceive us, but to bring us into the light and bring us into your acceptance, God. Jesus, we pray all this in your name, and we love you. Amen. Amen.